you would uh, bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to open God's Word and look at Ephesians 3 together. But let's pray first. Lord, we thank you uh, for this glorious day. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity uh, to gather together as your people. We pray that as we open your Word, uh, that you would just speak directly to us. Uh, As we say each week, as we come to your Word and the the preaching and teaching of your Word, that we say, uh, we just confess to you that we cannot do this without you. And so we ask uh, that your Spirit would move in this place. That you would take the eternal truths of your word and that you would enlighten our hearts and minds. That you would show us uh, the truth of your word. Uh, Even as we're going to talk about this morning that we can't do any of this without you. That it takes a work of your grace in our lives. And so we just pray that you would do that in this place this morning. Uh, We would spend this time in your word and that we would leave here having seen you more clearly in what you're doing. Uh, We thank you. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I was thinking about uh, how much I like to get to go to the movies. Joanna and I used to go to the movies all the time. And now with kids and life and everything else, we do it like maybe once a year, like maybe. But one of the things I like when I go is I like to go early because I want to actually see the trailers or the previews, right? Like now, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but lately uh, we just went not that long ago. And it's like the trailers are like 20 minutes long now. It's like a big, long thing. But I actually like that part because I like get to see... Because I'm only going to go like once a year, so the trailers are kind of like a big deal when you don't get to go very often. But I, I see all the, the movies that I might want to see, and so I kind of put them into different categories. There's ones that it's like, I, I'm never going to see that. <laughs> like There's some that I'm just like, no way. But then some of them, it's like, I want to see that, but I'll see it when it comes to video. Like, yeah, I might watch that when it comes to video. But then every once in a while, there's like a really, really great trailer that's kind of got all the things I like and kind of what I'm looking for. And I'll, and I'll look uh, at Joanna or whoever's with it and I go, we've got to see that one. Like, we've got to see that, right? Like, that's the movie we, we've got to get to. And if you watch around a movie theater, that happens with almost everybody. Somebody will turn and if you watch, they'll, they'll turn to the person next to them and be like, yeah, we've got to go see that one. Like, you'll even hear people see it. And, and I was thinking about just that idea of the trailer of the movie and what that looks like. Because there's something that Paul says right in the middle of this passage we're going to look at in Ephesians 3 this morning. Of this idea that, that we're to be creating, in a sense, trailers for God's kingdom. Right? We're, we're making known to the world the manifest wisdom of God in the heavenly places and we're showing what that looks like. And, and I heard a, a theologian and, and a guy that I, that I really respect years ago saying that. He said, we're, we're called to make uh, these trailers in the sense of God has invaded into our lives in Jesus. We now have the Holy Spirit in us and we're to be showing what it looks like that God's doing this in and through us. And I think Paul says that very idea in Ephesians 3. You see that in like verse 10 and 11 here where he talks about that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it's this really cool idea of, of Paul's talking about all these huge ideas in Ephesians that we've been looking at. Who we are in Christ and what it means for us and what's happened to people who didn't get along. Jews and Gentiles that hated each other, that didn't get along, that were fighting. And he says the wall of hostility has been torn down and now they're united together and they're one people. And we're beginning to show the world what God has done by his grace. And he gets to this and he's talking about all these huge soaring ideas in Ephesians. And he gets right here to the beginning of Ephesians chapter three. And he says, for this reason, 
I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he kind of goes into this digression. He says, for this reason, and he's about to tell you something, but it's like, wait a second, I need to explain to you something here first. And that's what we're going to look at today from verse 2 down to about verse 13. It's this little digression that he takes and he's explaining. And I think what he's saying is we look at this is he says a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then it's like, oh, wait a second. I need to explain that. We talked about this the very first couple weeks we were in Ephesians and I haven't mentioned it recently. But if you will remember where Paul is as he's writing this letter to these people to encourage them. He's actually in prison. When he says, I am a prisoner for you Gentiles, he means very literally he is in prison at this moment. And so I want you to think about the way they would receive this. Here he's telling them all these great things of who we are in Christ and what this means and the glory and what we're supposed to look like to the world and all these things. But yet the person who's writing to encourage them is in prison. And I think what you get here, if you look closely in verse 1 and then down in verse 14 that we'll look at in a couple weeks. But if you look, he says here, for this reason, I, Paul, and he says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then verse 14, he says, for this reason, he picks up his thought again. Right. And so what he does is he's saying this thing that he's about to say. But then when he mentions he's a prisoner, it's like, oh, yeah, I better explain that. I better talk about that for just a second. And so what I want us to think about this morning in this passage that Paul believe he's saying is he kind of goes into this this digression of sorts from verse two down to verse 13 is he's talking about that he is uh, in prison, that he's physically suffering at the moment and and life is a struggle for him and it's a hardship. Uh, He's going to get down to verse 13 and say, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And that kind of bookends what he's saying here. I'm a prisoner, but I don't want you to lose heart that I'm suffering. And so really the, the subtext to what he's going to say here from 2 down to verse 13 is suffering. It's the struggles and hardships of life. And so what I want us to think about this morning is this, what he says here that unlocks, that we continue to trust God, we continue to have joy, we continue to proclaim all the things that he's saying in Ephesians despite our suffering, despite our struggles. And so the way I want us to look at these few verses here is just simply to say this first, that we are going to have struggles in this life. That may be really obvious, maybe not, but there's some bad teaching that I hear frequently, um, especially in our country, uh, from, from uh, televangelists and the like about suffering and the way we should look at that, that I don't think the Bible teaches at all. And so the first thing I want us to consider is the Bible does say that we will have struggles. There will be hardship. But then the second thing, how our joy is not dependent on our circumstances. And Paul can say here, do not lose heart for what I'm suffering for you. Don't, don't let that be a deterrent to anything else I'm saying here. And then lastly, how do we live this out despite the difficulties we face in life? And so the first thing here of just we will have struggles. Uh, this is kind of almost the subtext to this sermon. Because I think of this digression that he's doing from verse 1 and then he picks up in verse 14. And so I want us to just spend just a moment on this because there is so much bad teaching that I think is thoroughly unbiblical when we get to this idea. And it goes something like this. That if you just have enough faith... 
and it's strong enough that you'll be wealthy and you'll be healthy and things will go great in your life and it's just a matter of having enough faith. And if you've heard that before, I am sorry. Because that's not what the Bible says. And it doesn't tell you that if you just have enough faith and it's just strong enough, everything will be great in your life. The Bible does not promise that. But you can turn on the TV regularly and hear that idea over and over. And it's popular in our culture because it appeals to our flesh. It appeals to our our sinful nature in the sense of if I just add Jesus to my life, I can get all the things that I really want. Like the right house and the right car and the right things and then everything will be great. But that's not what the Bible says. But you hear that frequently. I personally make a habit of not telling you. I don't bring up names. I don't point out people that preach or talk that way. And there's a simple reason why. I believe that we are called to hold to God's word, understand the best of our ability to preach and teach what it says. And when you know the truth, you will be able to spot counterfeits. And I believe that to be true. Um, The people who are experts in spotting counterfeit currency, you know how they do that? You know anything about that? I mean, it's a big problem in our country. People make counterfeit money all the time. But the people who are are tasked with, with spotting the counterfeit, what they do is they spend all their time studying the real thing. They don't spend any time studying counterfeits. They don't look at, well, these are the new things and the new counterfeits and what they look like. What they believe and what they found to be true is if you know what the real one looks like, when you see a counterfeit, it becomes real obvious. And I think that's the same is true with God's word and the gospel and who God is and what he's done. And we want to continue to uphold that Jesus is the center of all of it. And so the the cheat code or the cliff notes If we don't have all of the Bible perfectly, none of us has perfect theology. None of us has it ironed out in every way. But if you want to know how to spot a counterfeit, it's the simplest thing I can tell you. When you turn on the TV and you hear the the guy late at night preaching away, is Jesus the hero? Or is Jesus something you use to get you something else? Because Jesus is always going to be the hero. If Jesus is a means to an end and he's not the end, then you're hearing a counterfeit. It's that simple. And so I just say to you, as you think about that, as you're sure, I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. Is Jesus the hero? Is he the end? Because what happens a lot of times in poor doctrine and poor teaching is it's like if you just add Jesus to your life, then you can get all these other things. The problem is the Bible doesn't ever give us this promise that we won't have any suffering in our life. In fact, there's passages like in James 1 that says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. What the Bible says very clearly is trials are to be expected. That we live in a sinful, broken, fallen world and that you will have trials and hardships and struggles in your life, but that God can and will use them for good. He will use them for your good and for his glory. But it never promises that they won't be there. First Peter 
is written to suffering Christians. And Peter says you look to Jesus in the way that He suffered for us and He is our example and we are to do the same. That we are to entrust ourselves to our Father who judges justly and even through all those things we continue to praise Him and walk with Him in it. Or we could go to Jesus' words where He clearly says, if you follow Me and you love Me, the world's going to hate you. And then He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so he never promises this thing that if you just have enough faith, everything will be perfect and your life will hum along and there'll be no issues ever. That's not the promise of the Bible. In fact, I've been reading John a lot. We just finished it in prayer breakfast. I've been reading it with some different people. You get to the end of John's gospel and he's uh, commissioning Peter, restoring him after he's denied him and he's about to send him out and all the things that Peter's going to do. And you know what Jesus says to Peter right at the end there? He says, they're going to take you where you don't want to go and they're going to stretch your hands out. And then John says in parenthesis there, he says that was to tell Peter how he was going to die. Peter dies from crucifixion. And Jesus told him, you're going to die. And he did not pull him aside and say, hey, you're going to die of crucifixion. And if you just had a little more faith, you could avoid it. And so the Bible clearly tells us over and over that there's going to be suffering and hardships in this life. But then it quickly tells us that Jesus, in Jesus, we can have a deep and abiding joy despite our circumstances. Despite the things that are going on. That when we live our lives for His glory, even when those things come, we can rest in Him and there's a joy that transcends our circumstances. That God is going to make all things new. He's going to restore all of it. And so here Paul begins to talk about this idea of him being a prisoner. And then all of a sudden he's going to start to do this digression here. And he says, uh, verse 2, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. It's kind of like, assuming you know my story and how I became a believer and how God drew me to now go to the Gentiles, those that were far from God. And if you know Paul's story, what he's going to say here is I think the key that unlocks how we can understand suffering in the correct way. And everything that Paul's going to say here. And so he starts to talk about this mystery that's long been hidden, that's now been made clear. And in verses 4, 5, and 6, look what he says there. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so he says we're all saved the same way. Now you can go back and listen. The last two weeks we spent a lot of time on this. The hostility that was between Jews and Gentiles had to do with the Jews looking down on the Gentiles, believing they were saved for being Jewish, for having the law, for having the temple, for God choosing them to show the world what he was like, but they had twisted and distorted it to make it all about themselves. And he says it was long hidden, but now God is showing us that it's all his grace in Jesus that we're saved, that we're all saved the same way. That's what tears down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. 
It levels all of us to say that whether you grew up in the church or you grew up far from the church or you sought to honor God or you didn't seek to honor God, we all need God the same. We all desperately need His grace in our life, every single one of us, no matter where we came from. And he said when we begin to realize that, it begins to bring this unity and this thing starts to happen. And he says... Look at me, assuming you know about my life. Paul kind of turns and he's telling you, here I am in jail and here these things are happening, but I want you to understand this mystery that's been revealed to me. And he's going to make this case. So he'll say, so I ask you not to lose heart. This is to encourage you even in the difficult times. And so he's going to turn and talk about himself for himself for just a second. And so he says in verse three, The mystery was made known to me by revelation. And then in verse seven, he says of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. What do you know about how Paul became a believer? Paul was a terrorist in the most literal sense. He was a religious zealot. Who believed he was right. Philippians 3. He says I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I kept the law. I knew all of it. I was the right person. I figured it all out. I was smarter than everybody. I was kind of top of my class. And so what he did is he went and persecuted everyone that didn't believe the way he believed. Paul was a terrorist. Going from town to town. Throwing people in jail having them killed for following Jesus. That was who Paul was. And you can go and read in Acts that he was literally on his way from one town to the next, continuing and doing this, and God knocked him off his horse. He blinded him and knocked him down and said, why are you persecuting me? God moved in Paul's life by a revelation, by his grace. And Paul was so aware in every way that he was not deserving of this. And that's even part of why God chose Paul in the way he did. You are going to be my messenger of the gospel of grace. That it's all what God does for you. And so God gives Paul this literal, physical thing that happens in his life that shows exactly how every single one of us is ever saved. Which he relays in Ephesians 2 that we talked about just a couple weeks ago. When you were dead in your trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. That's Paul's life. I mean, he's literally killing people and throwing them in jail and going from town to town to do so. And God stops them. And he says, why are you persecuting me? And he blinds them. And then he says, you're going to go to this place. And then Paul, God uses Paul of all people to be the messenger to go and take this glorious good news. And that's what he's talking about here when he says, you know, or you've heard of the way that God has brought me into this. And what Paul is saying and what he is so aware of is that it's not about him. It's nothing in him that caused him to become a believer. That is only ever God's grace and nothing else in his life. And he was so aware of it. And everything that he did. 
And so I want you to think about why that's so important, why that's such a key to understanding the struggles that we go through in this life. In our sinfulness, we want to invert the truth of the way we relate to God. We want to believe that we're saved because we're pretty good people. Or we're saved because I do some good things. Or we might even hold to the the very fundamental Christian doctrine of what he says here. We're saved by grace, through faith. It is not our own doing, but in the back of our mind we want to believe. But he chose me or he revealed himself to me because I was pretty good. I wasn't quite as bad as those people over there. And so that's kind of, that's why I did it. Yeah, it was still his grace, but he knew I was pretty good. And I think what God does with Paul here is Paul knew. I mean, he was literally on his way to go persecute more Christians. There was nothing for him to cling to of, yeah, God chose me because I was a really good guy. And he opened his eyes to see that because what happens is when we believe that lie that it's not God's grace, but it's us then what follows with that is things like, if I have enough faith, then everything will go well. Because we're right at the center of it. It's all dependent on me. Do you see how that works? Or when things go really bad, God must be punishing me because I'm not doing good enough. Which those, those are equal lies on both sides that circumvent the grace of God and what he's done for us. But that's what we begin to believe. And it becomes so important for us to come back to the understand the grace of God in the middle of that. Now, side note to that, that, that we need to balance this. There are times in our lives when we are rebelling against God and we are walking in sin and he will allow us to feel the consequences of it. That is God's grace and it's because he loves you. What I mean by that is when we're when we're walking away and we're continuing to do things and God allows you to feel the consequences of it. It's the same thing we do with our children. When they're sinful and when they're rebelling and you give them consequences of it because you want them to live in the way God's called them to live, that's because you love them. It's the same thing we experience pain uh, from an injury. That's alerting us that there's something wrong. God lovingly alerts us to sin in our life by allowing us to feel the consequences. But when we talk about suffering as a general or global way, and then we want to make it be that God is now punishing us, that's not true. Jesus says that's not true. When people come and ask him that exact question, he says, no, that's not the way it works. You can read that in Luke 13. He says that very thing. It doesn't work like that. But when we miss that, we we get into this bad teaching of, of God is responding to me in this way. And if I just had more faith, I wouldn't have suffering in my life. But I want you to think about how the gospel blows that apart. The very heart of everything we believe is that we sinful people who've rebelled against God, who've not trusted him, who've walked away from him. But yet God loves us so much that he sends his son into this world to do what we could never do for us. 
And he lives a perfect life in every way, but yet he accepts suffering on our behalf. It's the exact opposite the way the world thinks. Instead of giving us what we deserve, he gives us what we don't deserve. He takes our sin upon himself. And by grace, he triumphs over sin and suffering by what he does on the cross. And it inverts all of it. That through his suffering, he defeats it. I want you to think about what they saw as we're going to come up to Easter and we think about this over the next few weeks. What they were experiencing as Jesus died on the cross. Thinking he was going to be the conquering Messiah that would overthrow Rome and he comes and what happens? The brutal oppressors that were awful to everyone take him and nail him to a cross and they crucify him and they mock him. And they spit on him. And as Jesus hangs there, he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And he takes everything that our world would say on how it works and he turns it on its head. He says, no, it's by grace through faith and what I do for you that you get the benefits of any of this. And so when you see that and when you begin to understand that as Paul was understanding it. He knew it so clearly in his life. He could see now that when he is in jail, when he is suffering on Jesus' behalf, he's going, none of this is out of God's control. This is how God works. It's the exact opposite of the way the world works. And he could tell them over and over, don't lose heart. God is in control of this and he is working and he is using. And the reason that Paul could see this is he realized that his life, every bit of his life, everything that he was or would ever be, was all because of God's grace and what he had done for him. His life was not his own. And he had a clear understanding that if God wants to take me and use me in a prison so that I can proclaim the gospel, the people that haven't heard it before, then great. Take heart. Do not lose heart at what I'm suffering, which is your glory. He goes, I'm fine with that. All that I am and all that I will ever be is all God's and it's by His grace anyway, so that's fine. And so when we begin to see the clear uh, understanding of the gospel, that it's all what God does for us, it changes the lens in which we see everything that we come in contact with in our life. Look at what he says in verses 11, 12, and 13. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He says, this is God's eternal purposes to make known his glory over the face of the earth. And if I'm going to be used in a way where I'm in prison, then so be it. I want to make much of Jesus in the life that I have. And he says, that's okay. And I don't want you to lose heart over that. And so I want you to understand when we see the gospel. It, it does so many things to the way that we see the world around us. One is we've experienced the grace of God by no doing of our own, and it should change our entire lens of everything. 
But in what Christ has done on the cross, what it not only says is it changes the lens in which we see things, but it changes the outcome of all things that we go through. Jesus has defeated sin and death and the struggles and the hardships that we go through now will be made right. And it also tells us that even when we go through those struggles and those hardships, that yes, they will be made right. But as you are going through them right here and right now, God knows everything that you're experiencing and what you've gone through because he's experienced it. He is not far off. He's not saying, oh, it's okay. I got you and I know it's he's experienced it. He's entered in and he's walked in it with us. And so he is near us in those circumstances. And so Paul, knowing all of this, can say, don't lose heart in any of it. All that we are and all that we have is because of God's grace and nothing else. And the way God uses and glorifies and shows is the opposite of the way the world says those things work. And so we can trust him in all of that. The gospel blows that apart. It blows apart what we think we deserve and what God actually does for us. It inverts them. And the glory of it begins to change the way we see everything. So the question becomes, how do we live in light of that truth? Go back to verse seven. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Notice where he's putting all the emphasis. I'm a minister according to the gift of God's grace, the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul is so very aware that it has nothing to do with who he was or how good he was or what he was doing. He says, I am the least of all the saints. It was nothing in me. It was all God's doing. And he says, it's to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We now get to use the lives that God has given us to glorify who he is and what he's done. As we together get to make known the manifold witness of what God is doing, the power and the glory of his gospel. And so when we're called to love one another and to die to ourselves and encourage one another and walk in those ways and show grace to people that the world would say don't deserve grace. We are bearing witness to the grace that God has given us. When we honor God and we praise him despite the struggles of our life. It magnifies his glory. He is better than all of those things. And as we live that out and we do that, we are creating trailers of what the kingdom looks like. We are beginning to to show the wisdom of God in that and the grace that he's given to us in all things. We're showing that he is more worthy than anything else. We get to now do that. 
And the more that we understand that all that we have and all that we are, us being saved is completely by his grace. The more that makes sense. And so we get to now live that way, even in our suffering, even in the struggles that we deal with. That's why Paul can say that the things that he suffered in his life, which were great, imprisonment, being beaten to death, within inches of being beaten to death, shipwrecked, snake bit, all those things, and he would call them light momentary afflictions compared to the weight of glory that is to come. Because he saw it that way. And it transformed the way he saw his suffering and the struggles in his life. And so, I just want to end with this as we think about what it looks like to live that. Uh, You know our dear friend Elaine Probst. She's wasting away in her body at this moment. And she can't really move. She's in terrible pain. She's on all these drugs and all these things. Luke and I sat there with her about a month ago. And she told us the story of her hospice nurse coming to visit her. And her hospice nurse comes to see her. And Elaine said, I'm laying in my bed in pain. And all I am is just a body of pain that can't move. And she said, God brought this lady to me whose child was struggling with some learning disabilities. If you know Elaine, that's her specialty. That's what she's given her life to. And she's laying there on her bed. She said, God saw fit to use me in this. And she showed up and she said, I got to share with her how her child is differently gifted. And that God's going to use this. And she said, she brought her to me and I got to share these things. And she said, so here God is still using me in this body. I can't move. I'm in terrible pain, but God sees fit to use me right now. Elaine's living what Paul was saying. Do not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. She's using the opportunity that God's given her in her sickness, laying in her bed, that Jesus would be made known as great. And what's happened is her nurse, the chaplain that came to visit her, which she immediately said, well, can I pray for you? The guy was like, what? (laughs) You know what's happening? The manifold witness, the, the, the glory of what God is doing and who he is, is being known even right now in her sickness as she lays there. Because she knows that God is better. She knows the grace of God that she's experienced in her life is far greater than anything else. And so in all things, we have that opportunity to show what God is like. That His grace is better than anything else. And that's exactly what I think Paul's talking about. Don't you lose heart over what I'm suffering right now. I get to use this part of my life to make Jesus known. Oh, that that would be us. That we would see every part of our life as an opportunity to proclaim the glories of who Jesus is and what He's done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the glorious good news of the Gospel. That yet while we were sinners, You have died for us. 
that you loved us enough to pursue us in these ways. And we thank you. I pray that you would help to transform the things that we see right in front of us each day as opportunities to make you known, to glorify your name in all things. I pray uh, for those here that are struggling with very real and hard things in their life right now. I know that you know each one. I thank you that you are with us in our suffering. I thank you that you know every bit of it. I thank you that you have given us your grace. I pray that you would make real to each one here today the glory of what you're doing. Even when we can't understand it, even when it seems a mess, we thank you that you are at work to redeem and restore all things. And so expand our vision of your glory in all of it. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.